Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian Ministry, Word and Sacraments, and we're spending a great deal of time on the ministry because it's something we don't have opportunity to look at frequently, and we need to because our understanding of it here in America has atrophied to say the least. We left off on page 30, and we'll pick back up there with the question, who then properly has the right or power to send and call ministers of the Word and of the Sacraments? Before we answer that question, let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. As we've seen up into this point, the office of the Holy Ministry is instituted by Christ, and it is Christ who calls men into this office, and he does so in one of two ways. Do you remember this distinction? Immediately or immediately. And we're going to see Chemnitz lay that out for us. We can think of an immediate call being a direct call. So think of Moses at the burning bush or Paul on the road to Damascus, where the Lord Jesus himself directly calls a man into a given office. In this case, we're looking at the pastoral office. And what the Lord does to confirm this, those whom he calls immediately, is he gives them miracles that demonstrate that it is in fact he who has called them. So they're doing things that only God could do, thus God is confirming their office and message. The other category is going to be the immediate call, that, or excuse me, the immediate call, that is, immediately through the church, a man is called or placed into the office. And that's the kind of thing we see in the pastoral epistles of the New Testament, First and Second Timothy and Titus, where Paul is giving instructions to these two men about the qualifications for those who are to be called immediately through the church into this pastoral office of Christ. All right, so at question 12, who then properly has the right or power to send and call ministers of the word and of the sacraments? Chemnitz writes, at all times there have been great, often also bloody, controversies regarding the right to call. But speaking properly and on the basis of Scripture, the right to call and to send laborers into the harvest belongs to him who is the Lord of the harvest. And it is good to note in Scripture that the right and administration of this call are ascribed expressly to the individual persons of the Trinity. For the Son says of the Father, Matthew 9.38, Pray ye the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. Paul testifies of the Son of God, Ephesians 4.8 and 11-12, through 12, he ascended on high and gave gifts to people. 
and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some, or some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the upbuilding of the body of Christ. The same is also attributed to the Holy Spirit in Acts 13, 2, verse 4, and chapter 20, verse 28. Therefore, also, God does not recognize as true pastors those who have not been sent by him, even if they have been called and appointed by kings or by a political magistrate. And, of course, Jeremiah 23 and 27 could be mustered in support of this. All right, so what is the point? The point of the biblical doctrine of the office of the Holy Ministry is it is always directing our attention back to Christ. It's his office. It's he who does the calling. Here, beautifully, we see in the scriptures all three of the persons could be said to do the calling. And um, we're going to see then in question 13, uh, how it is this distinction between with means or without means um, the call takes place. So question 13, but how and in what way does God call and send ministers into the church? There is no legitimate or ordinary call to the ministry except from God, and it is twofold, either without means or through means. Without means is the immediate, through means is the mediate. Okay, so then that takes us to what is apropos of our times and standard for us. Um, Or excuse me, boy, I am having a hard time this morning. I need a cup of coffee. (laughs) Reversing exactly what I want to say and intend to say. Okay, so question 14, what is a call without means? And how does it take place? When someone is called and sent to the ministry neither by men nor through men, as through regular means, but without means, by God himself and through God himself, as God in this way called the patriarchs, prophets, and apostles, without any intervening human means. And they who have thus been called have the testimony of the Spirit and of miracles that they do not err in doctrine." And the rest of the ministers of the church take their doctrine from them, and they must prove it thereby. And besides, the ministry of those who have been called without means is not bound and anchored to a certain church at only one place, but they have the command to teach all people everywhere. All right, so here... At question 14, we have laid the foundation of the immediate call, and we can see how it is distinguished from the immediate call, not only in how the Lord calls the man into office, in this case directly, without means, but then also, according to Chemnitz, the scope of that man's ministry. I think that this will make more sense if we put it in concrete terms, just because Faith Lutheran Church has called me to be a pastor of Faith Lutheran Church, or we might put it this way, that God, through Faith Lutheran Church, has called me to be a pastor of Faith Lutheran Church, that does not grant me the ability to go be the pastor of any other church I see fit, or to just walk into any church on Sunday morning and say, well, I have a divine call, a call from God through Faith Lutheran Church to preach here as well. 
I, in fact, don't. Okay? So that would be a distinction that could easily be made between an immediate call. Think of the apostles who are given to preach everywhere. And then a immediate call that is tied to a specific congregation or locale. Does that make sense? Okay. So, again, when speaking of the pastoral office in a proper sense, it's always tied to a given locale or congregation. All right, let's pause there, see if you have any reflections on the immediate call or the call without means, the way in which the Lord, one of the two ways in which the Lord calls. My question has to do with apostolic succession. Um, what's the Lutheran interpretation or stance on that? Do they put any stock on that? Well, not really. So, we what we view is... Okay, imagine this. Let's just say that this was something like what actually happened in reality. Uh, one guy puts his sweaty palms on the head of another guy who then puts his head on, his sweaty palms on the head of another guy and so on and so forth. But at certain times in history, the list gets broken and the list gets lost. And to further complicate things, the sweaty palms that were put upon one guy's head were the sweaty palms of a heretic and or the guy who received the palms upon his head becomes a heretic himself and then puts his sweaty palm upon the head of somebody else. And so underneath him are maybe ultimately something like thousands of pastors that could trace their generation to this one heretic whose sweaty palm... What does is, is the sweaty palms being passed down one upon another have to do with anything? Zilch. That's the Lutheran critique of a Roman Catholic understanding of apostolic succession. Does that mean we have no doctrine of apostolic succession? No, that also would be incorrect. Okay, Our doctrine of apostolic succession is this, that the apostles taught, and they taught the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation down to us. And insofar as the apostolic teaching is faithfully transmitted there is, in fact, an apostolic succession, an apostolic succession of doctrine, not of sweaty palms upon foreheads. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah. Okay, there's one up here. Yeah, um, do we have to be careful about, about the um, type of call that is kind of of God? Uh, because, again, you can claim, I've, I've gotten a call. Yes, exactly. And, and uh, you know, call to this place, and, and um, it it's, could be fraught with trouble. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I mean, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here, but this is a reality. As, as of Hebrews, in many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. Now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his... Son and his son calls the apostles, and from that time forward, you have the 
apostolic faith, the faith of the apostles, we're not looking for any further revelation. And you have the pastoral office being handed down in the first generation and as, as men who meet the qualifications for the office are called into that office. Again, this is 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. Okay, why, what would be the necessity of an immediate call? There is no necessity. Now, we want to obviously recognize that God is free to do that any time and any place he pleases. We're not going to put handcuffs on God. That being said, it is normative that he is no longer doing that. He is now almost entirely calling immediately through churches. So in our day and age, we ought to be even more skeptical than, and by our day and age, I really mean in the New Testament era, we ought to be even more skeptical than they were of old of the prophets who suddenly just said, hey, I've heard this from Yahweh. Because that's not that that was how Yahweh normally called in the Old Testament times. That's not how he normally calls now. And so we ought to be especially diligent if someone says, Hey, I've received this call directly from God, and saying, Okay, what proofs do you have of that? And why would he for what task and purpose would he call you? immediately and let's examine your faith and test that against the scriptures and let's see if you have any miracles or confirmations from god that we could all say ah yes he has in fact so we should be very suspicious of that in our day and age mm-hmm. yes please yeah where would uh luther on the road in the storm fall in that where he prays for deliverance and says that he'll become a priest if he's delivered well, at that time, he only says, I'll become a monk, which is different than a priest. Okay. And also, there's, according to Luther's own account, no divine calling from God. So it's a matter of circumstance. And in fact, he bargains with God. So uh, he's so deathly afraid that he's going to be struck by lightning or killed by this storm that he actually prays, I also believe, uh, to St. Anne rather than even directly to God. Help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. So keep me safe from this storm, and I will go into the religious order and religious life. So we're still pretty far away, quite a few miles away from the pastoral office or an immediate call. Again, uh, just as a good template for the Old Testament, Moses and the burning bush, God directly calls Moses and states the scope of his ministry. And then likewise, if, if you're thinking of an immediate call the way we usually th- think of it in New Testament times, I mean, of course, the calling of the 12 is immediate because Jesus is directly going to them. But that's just not how we think of it because Jesus is now ascended. So with Jesus ascended, what does an immediate call look like? It looks like St. Paul on the road to Emmaus. So you have these major moments where, Christ, where Jesus calls men to a specific office or task and then backs that up with many and various signs. I mean, St. Paul can do the miraculous uh, just as Moses can in Egypt. God working through them, of course. Uh, Elijah would be another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Elijah. I mean, really, again, in the Old Testament, 
it's all immediate if you're talking about the prophetic office because Yahweh has to come to you. That the word of the Lord has to come to you. And you can think of that refrain throughout the prophets. You know, the word of the Lord came to me or the word of the Lord said to me. I don't know about that. I'd be, I'd be skeptical of that because in Jeremiah, for example, you have this theology represented that's through going through the Old Testament um, where the Lord chastises those for running when he did not send. So it seems to be a basic principle of the Old Testament prophetic office that Yahweh himself has to call and send. Oh, I see. I see. I'm sorry. I miss. Yeah, that's exact. In fact, that's sort of like the, (laughs) that's sort of like the number one tell that it's a false prophet. Yeah. As hey, I think I'll be a prophet today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Please. Is there, like, in unordinary times, if the church is not available, um, this is an extreme example. Let's say someone was in a car accident, Mm -hmm. and. Well, even on the sick bed, never been churched before. Mm-hmm. And you just happen, if a non um, minister was there, maybe may be a member of the church, but wasn't in a calling um, to be a preacher, is there anything what a layman could possibly do or pray at that moment of time um, for that person, for, the, for their own salvation? Yeah, yeah, great question. Absolutely. Um, as we're going to see, and Chemnitz is really good on this point, the distinction between laity and ministry or pastors and lay people is only helpful insofar as it's helpful. There is a time and a place to make a distinction, and that's largely what we've been doing heretofore. But the other side of the coin is that the church and ministry are one, one body of Christ. And as that one body of Christ goes forth into the world, there are going to be times, just as you describe, where there isn't a called and ordained pastor who can get there in time. And that is, of course, then incumbent upon the individual Christian, the member of the larger body of Christ, to proclaim the gospel, um, to even, in cases of emergency, to baptize and then to report that baptism back to the congregation, to the pastor, so that that can uh, be recognized. Um, but yes, laity in those circumstances can baptize, can preach. I, I don't think there'd be any controversy with a lay person um, absolving, especially if the very sick person or was was making a confession or something, and the per, and the lay person was to simply pronounce an absolution based on the completely sufficient atonement of Christ on the cross. Uh, We stop short of communion in that vein because there's never really emergency communion. Properly speaking, there's not emergency anything because God's in control of it all. There's not emergency communion. There's not emergency absolution. There's not emergency baptism. But what there is is baptism in an emergency. or absolution in an emergency. But communion isn't required in an emergency. So that's typically where the line is drawn. Does that help? Yes. Yeah, okay.
Take your time, please. I, I was going to follow up on Gordon's point. Uh, we have current day examples in the last 30 years or so uh, of prophets that have kind of gone down in flames or up in flames like oh, goodness, <laughs> David <right>. Koresh, uh, <laughs> Jim Jones. You know, he was great. Right. Uh, you know, and you can think of examples like that that relatively quickly were, were really in a mess. Yeah. So... Yeah, and we, it should be said too, at least for the sake of those online, that if if you if your pastor has predicted something about the future and it didn't take place, that's an indication that he's a false prophet and you ought to flee from him. So that that's something that is also very very popular, sadly, especially here it appears in Southern California, that these guys get really big gatherings of people around them get really full of themselves and think they've cracked the code and now they know what Jesus says not even the son knows and that is the day and the hour at which the end of the world is going to take place and so they announce this and lo and behold it doesn't happen I mean immediately the second that 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 time that they predicted goes past their churches ought to be empty from that point forward. Yeah. Okay, yes, please. Um, please comment on monks and nuns. Many feel that they are called also. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> it's a big topic. It's a big topic. Okay, it seems to be the case, and you can see this in the pastoral epistles, that there is this office called widow, okay? And Paul even sets parameters for the enrollment, which widows qualify for this office and what they're to be about. This office, in all likelihood, is, well, in the first place, it just asserts principally the church's ability to create whatever auxiliary offices it wants um, for the mutual benefit of the church. In this case, the widows who have no other financial or familial support, it benefits them, but then that also they're engaged in acts of service and mercy on behalf of the church, it benefits the church. So these were, so this was like the sort of uh, proto-nun was a, was a widow. And uh, you, know, you're, you no longer have your earthly vocations. Your children are grown up, your husband is deceased, you're not pursuing marriage, your vocation and calling now is centered around um, washing the feet of the saints, etc. Okay, so can the church create an office like widow or like monk or like nun? Yes, it can in its freedom. Christ allows that. Now, obviously, no surprise to us as Lutherans, as the centuries roll on, Corruption takes place as um, within the understanding of what it means to be a monk or a nun or a quote-unquote religious. And um, that gets to be seen as meritorious, and it gets to be seen as the way you earn heaven, and the only guaranteed way to earn heaven. It gets to be seen as uh, preferable and superior to the regular mundane Christian life, you know, of doing the actual God-given vocations and fulfilling the Ten Commandments. And in these respects, then, it becomes aberrant and something that's very easy for the Lutherans and others along the way to point and say, 
hey, this is ridiculous. And furthermore, there tended to be more security. If you wanted to just do nothing but read all day and get and have, have bread on the table and wine in the cup at the end of the day, no better way of doing that than become a monk. So, so from kind of an entire spectrum of abuses, the Lutheran perspective became very critical of uh, monasticism as it's existed for centuries. And I think we remain rightly critical of that insofar as it continues those errors and aberrations that we've mentioned and some of which I haven't mentioned. Okay, But what we're not going to do, though, is go so far as to say that there couldn't be an office created by the church where uh, the church supports certain people who agree to serve the community. I don't see anything, I don't see any problem with that whatsoever. And if you are going to have a problem with that, you're going to end up condemning a lot of very Orthodox church fathers and some Orthodox monks who essentially sought to live that way. And even monks, if you think of like a desert monk who goes out there, the I'll try to put it in the best possible light. They go out into the wilderness. The idea is to, it's not just for one's personal salvation, but to pray for the church. That's an office and vocation of praying for the church. There's some other spiritual elements that are kind of alien and foreign to us. They'll sound strange, but at the time it made a lot more sense to them. And that is that going out into the desert, why the desert? Not just because it's a place of asceticism, but who dwells in the desert? Jackals and owls and beasts and demons. And so you're going out there to wage spiritual warfare against the demons in service of the church. Um, A very classic text on this would be uh, Athanasius, who you know from the Athanasian Creed. It's named after him. He didn't write it. But Athanasius, you'd struggle to find a more orthodox church father. And he writes the life of Anthony. And Anthony is um, sort of the proto-monk, the, the ideal monk living in the desert. You can see the spiritual warfare and the prayer and the example and the emulation. And I think what you really see there also in a work like that is you see the way the most orthodox of all orthodox Christians of a given time period, how they viewed monasticism. And it's really hard to look at the life of Anthony and say, oh, he was trying to earn his salvation, or he was doing this because he thought he was better than people, or um, he was providing a way saying, hey, if you're just going to get married, you're a lesser Christian, or you're, you're a subspecies of Christian or something. Like, he doesn't do any of that. So if you're looking for a very positive take on that, you could go to Athanasius' life of Anthony. I don't know. I probably didn't answer your question as specifically as I would have liked, but it's a tough one. Okay, was there another hand or comment? We're all right? All right. Very good. Question 15 is on page 31. Is one therefore immediately to believe all fanatics when they claim that God has appeared to them. Here you go, Bob. This was to your point. But even think more broadly than those who claim to have uh, to be pastors by immediate call. Think of um, here also, just at least play with the idea, even if it's not specifically what Chemnitz has in mind, but think of all your evangelical friends who say, God said to me, or God gave me a message to give to you. 
or God put this on my heart. So at least have that in the back of your mind as you read the critique. Is one therefore immediately to believe all fanatics when they claim that God has appeared to them, that the Lord has spoken to them, that the Father has given them this commission, and that they are thus stirred up and moved by the Spirit? Answer, by no means. For God has forbidden this with an express warning, Jeremiah 14, 14. But God endows those whom he calls without means, either with the gift of miracles or with other testimonies of the Spirit with which to prove and confirm their call. Thus Moses established his call before Pharaoh with the gifts of miracles, Exodus 4 and following. Therefore Paul also calls signs, wonders, and mighty deeds proofs of the apostolate, 2 Corinthians 12.12. Christ speaks of these, John 5.36, Matthew 10.8. But one should not believe false doctrine that leads away from God and conflicts with the word, even if miracles follow it. And here's references to Deuteronomy, Matthew, and 2 Thessalonians. Because our Lord expressly warns um, that many will deceive using great signs and miracles. So, If someone comes and says to you, hey, the Lord made me a prophet, you should listen to me, the very first thing you're listening to is to make sure that they say exactly what the Bible says, exactly what the Orthodox Church has taught for 2,000 years. If not, they fail test one. If they do all that, you want to say, okay, well, still, what is your confirmation for God that God has called you to this office and role? Are there any other miracles, etc., that would confirm this, or testimonies of the Spirit that would confirm this? And if not, that too should make you distance yourself. Okay, So these are proofs, but not definitive proofs. And that's simply the, scri- the Scripture's teaching to us on this point. Okay, Any questions there? Does that make sense? Okay. okay, question 16. Should one also in these times expect from God a call like that without means? And here is Chemnitz's answer. We neither want nor ought to prescribe anything to the free will of God and his infinite power. But since in the New Testament we neither have any promise that after the apostles God wants to send laborers into his harvest through an immediate, i.e. without means, call, nor is there a command that we should wait until ministers are appointed by an immediate call. We therefore observe and should observe the form that the apostles have prescribed for us by the Holy Spirit, namely, that and how God at this time wants to call and send ministers to his church through a mediate, that is through means, immediate call or regular means. And then we're going to go into what then is immediate call. So Chemnitz here um, stating what I you know, obviously had just alluded to a moment ago, and that is that since we are in the New Testament times, we're not going to preclude the possibility that God could call someone immediately. He obviously retains that prerogative. But we ought to be very skeptical because that's not the normative way he does things in the New Testament. So even more skeptical than they were in the Old. 
All right, question 17. What then is a mediate call? Answer, when any minister is called and appointed to the ministry of the church, indeed by God and divinely, but not without means, as the prophets and apostles were, but through regular means, in a legitimate way. For a mediate call is as much from God as an immediate one. And that's maybe a key for us to wrap our heads around. A mediate call is as much from God as an immediate one. But they differ in the manner of the call. For God called the prophets and apostles immediately through himself, but God called and sent Titus, Timothy, Sosthenes, Silvanus, and others likewise, but not immediately, rather through means instituted and ordained by himself for this purpose. Okay, so then what do we see in a, in a immediate call? A immediate call isn't taking place within the heart of a man. A immediate call is taking place external to the man. It's coming from God, who's outside of the man, through the church, which is outside of a man, and coming to the man, and the man can either respond yes or no. (laughs) Okay, But it's important to make this distinction that immediate call doesn't have anything to do with, you know, God... And, and again, I think we Lutheran pastors are as guilty as any other pastors out there in this regard of thinking that God speaks secretly to the heart. We have no promise or guarantee of that. If you want to be a pastor, you ought to just own it and say, I want to be a pastor. If you want to say, you know, in this sense that like, well, I really wanted to be everything but a pastor and God continued to, you know, make obvious to me the value and benefit of becoming a pastor and that he would likely have me. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But this idea that God has somehow internally called you is really identical to that of the fanatics. That God has called me immediately in my heart and thus I'm going to seminary and it's all inevitable because God has called me immediately in my heart. That's not our theology. That's not the biblical theology. The biblical theology is a man who desires the office of pastor, desires a noble thing. Who's doing the desiring? The human being. And only when he receives a call immediately through the church does he know God shares that desire. Until then, he should just own his own desire rather than think that it's God writing all of this into his heart. Obviously, God you know, can confirm that desire. As you say, you know, let's say you're a young man and you're considering the office of the pastoral ministry as, as a pursuit. You talk with other people around you and they encourage you and they build you up. And you talk with your pastor and he encourages you and builds you up. So do other people in the congregation and your district and so on and off you go. I mean, this is all like, you know, just Christ, sound Christian wisdom and it's good and you should listen to that. But you need to wait to see if God is calling you until you have the call document in hand. Until then, you don't know for a fact that he is calling you for that purpose. Okay, so that's the nature of the immediate call. It takes place external to the man. I was going to pose a theoretical situation in a church body. You have an older man who observes um, the uh, qualities and behavior of a younger man, 
uh, and he thinks that that man may be uh, eligible or should go into the ministry. What what is the proper way to do it? Is it to go to the pastor, go to the elder board, or go directly to the man? And it's a great question, and all of the above are on the table. Um, I think a good excuse me a good way to approach a younger man, and frequently my case, hey, have you thought about going to seminary? Or, you know, if they're very into the Bible or very into the church history or very into the liturgy or something like that, hey, if you keep that up, you're going to land in seminary. <laughs> um, and, and then I think if, you're, if you were very serious about it uh, and you just kept seeing it over and over and you were worried that your voice maybe didn't have enough impact on the, on the young man, maybe you would go to the pastor or an elder and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. Do you see it too? Yeah, I see it too. Hey, let's talk to him about it. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very good. I, I mean, I'm of the opinion that I think every Christian male uh, ought to at least consider it. Ought to at least consider it. You may, you may find out almost immediately, nope, that's not me. <laughs> I like math, not language, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but every, every man ought to at least consider the possibility. Uh, because again, what are we talking about here? Categorically, we just need to clean it all up. What you're talking about is, um, would, I, would I be willing, would it be good stewardship of the gifts that God has given me to set myself and, and the talents that God's given me in service of his church? And I think that that's a, that's a completely valid question for any male to ask himself. And you may really quickly come up with the answer. <laughs> And the answer might be, nope, no thanks, no way, no how. Um, or I just, I would love to, but I'm not gated for it. I would love to, but I'm not going to be able to learn Hebrew. So, you know, and that's fine. I, but just to at least have that impulse and consideration. And then to, to turn from that and realize, okay, um, even though I'm not gated for that, that's no, that's, that's the service that God has for me isn't a lesser service. That also is the beautiful part of uh, the doctrine of vocations. You don't have to be a pastor in order to like serve God. Likewise, being a pastor in service to God isn't like okay, you'll always be a second class Christian or or offering him second class service. That's not how the doctrine of vocation works. The doctrine of vocation works that God gives you various callings. You can specify what those callings are, you know, and then. Um, through those callings, he blesses and benefits all other people. When he looks at you, he's looking at how you are conducting yourself within those vocations, not so much at the vocation itself. He isn't, oh, you're a businessman. Ooh, you know, oh, you're a lawyer. Wow, okay, I'm impressed. Uh, oh, you're a pastor. Hmm, you know, <laughs> that's not God. God's like, okay, this is what you're given to do. This is your spiritual sacrifice. Um, and, and I think with that attitude in our minds, we can see that anything we do vocationally is pleasing to our Father. Anything we do vocationally is the spiritual sacrifice, the laying down of our lives in service of Him. And that's what matters. I mean, and that... Yeah, this just makes my mind go to this other place where, you know, with the pastoral ministry, we sometimes get all these really bonkers ideas like, well, God needs me. That's kind of the internal idea. That, I mean, that couldn't be further from the truth. 
God, God could proclaim the gospel and administer the sacraments through rocks if he wanted to. I think Jesus makes that point. Um, God does indeed speak through the mouth of a donkey, so that'll, you're not needed. Um, that's the first thing. And then the other thing I think we sometimes get communally is we get this idea of like, well, God really needs this man. Look how talented he is. God doesn't need that at all. In fact, the, one whom Christ, the ones whom Christ chooses to be his apostles, what unique qualifications, skills, talents, or internal habituses and aptitudes do these men exhibit? None. They're fishermen. <laughs> they're not particularly literate. They're not particularly eloquent. They're not particularly brave, as is exhibited throughout all the Gospels. Now, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, there is a transformation, to be sure. But God does not see things the way we see things. We see things pragmatically. Oh, we have to have this. Oh, we, you know, all of this is nonsense from God's perspective. He can do whatever he wants. He is doing whatever he wants. He's perfectly in control. The doctrine of election hasn't changed one lick. Um, What he intends to do isn't going to be thwarted by us. And so we can rest and be comfortable in his calling and vocation and his ordering and all of that. And then we can say, well, why does he bother? Why does he call men into the pastoral office? And why does he? Christ is very clear when he explains this to his disciples, that my joy might be within you. The whole idea of God giving a pastoral office and creating a church and then populating church and office are are for our joy, that we would share in his joy. What's his joy? Salvation and bringing salvation to sinners. And so he institutes and creates ministry and church really as one organic whole to communicate that joy to us, to draw us in and then send us out, as it were, uh, within the proper vocational shapes and forms, um, but that our joy may be full. So the whole thing isn't fear and necessity and pragmatism and the wisdom of man and calculating and We don't need any of that. We just need to be faithful to God's word and be humble in our callings and pray that he would bless and recognize that he gives us, that he gives these gifts to man for man's blessing and benefit. And as we participate in them as pastors and people, um, that we would share in his joy. So that takes all the pressure off, doesn't it? In terms of the pastoral ministry and the church, in terms of the mission and evangelism, there's just no fear there, biblically speaking. Now, today in the church, there's just nothing but fear. And you can see how many of our church leaders and pastors are just doing nothing but fear-mongering. If you don't change, you're going to die. The church is going to perish. You need to adopt this or do that, or there's this program or that program. And if you don't, you know, you've got to get your guitars in there. You're going to, I mean, as if the Holy Spirit needs that. He's like, okay, well, you've got my word, but you don't have the guitars, so back on that until you get those things. I mean, this is preposterous the way we think and preposterous the way we've been allowed to be manipulated by fear. And Fear is just the leverage point of the devil to get you to move. We're all getting a master class in this politically <laughs> because that's all the, all the media wants us to do, whether it's right or left or whatever. Um, I don't really even believe that, but it, all they want you to do is be fearful. Why? So you tune back in All the politicians want you to do is be fearful. Why? Because then they have the answer to your fear. They have the way of relieving your fear. Do they ever? Of course not. And you wouldn't need them. 
So to keep you in a perpetual state of fear is to keep you in the palm of their hand. And the church has fallen subject to the same machinations and manipulations. And it's all just nonsense. We have to remember who God is. He's completely and perfectly in control. Christ is not sitting white-knuckled in heaven going, Oh, jeez, I hope they get this right. <laughs> it's absurd. It's absurd. So just the, the faithful knowledge that he's in control, that he's Lord of the church, and that we're participants in his church, whether as pastors or people, that we might share in his joy. And if Christ is anything, he's joyful as his gospel goes forth into the world. And he's undaunted and could care less if men reject him. So be it. Whoever rejects me will be rejected. That's the end. Hope it's not you. Because <laughs> I would have you be saved. I laid down my life for you. Don't waste it. Don't squander it. If you do, that's your prerogative. But I'm not going to be shaken by that. It's you who will be shaken. So, complete confidence, calmness, joy. And that's what we all need to embrace, especially in these times where, you know, the whole world is shaking and trying to shake itself so that we can be manipulated by fear. Okay, well, mini-sermon over. Sorry about that. All right, was there, uh, were there any other questions or perspectives that, that came up in that regard? Okay. So, let's look down at question 18. Is a mediate call based on the Word of God? It certainly is. For the apostles appointed elders in every church by an election of the church. And you can look at Acts 14.23 for an example of this. Thus the ministry of the church was entrusted to Timothy by the laying on of hands of the presbytery. All right, the presbytery is language for um, the pa- those who hold the pastoral office. Okay. So what you have going on here, I just want to point this out really quickly because it kind of might escape us if we're not thinking in the, in the categories that are familiar to this doctrine. Okay, The apostles appointed elders. So elders is biblical language for pastors. In the Lutheran Church, we have a tendency to get confused. It's not elders, um, like we think of them, the board of elders. That's a lay office created by the church. Okay, So when it says that the apostles appointed elders, it's talking about pastors, presbyteros, the elder, in every church by an election of the church. Even in that first statement, you can see two things going on. You can see the appointment of the elders and the election of the church. See how it's both? It's not that the apostles just say, here's your man, whether you want him or not. We're apostles, you have to listen to us. That's not what goes on. But the apostles have to approve of the man, and the church has to approve of the man. That's what an election is, is the church's approval. So in other words, you have to have the approval of the ministry and the approval of the church. Those are the two ingredients. So far, so good? So then, even made more clearly in that next line, thus the ministry of the church was entrusted to Timothy by the laying on of hands of the presbytery. 1 Timothy 4.14. Okay, the presbytery being the ministry. All right, this is where the practice of ordination or the laying on of hands comes from. So it has this biblical precedent. And what the right of laying on of hands does is shows that the ministerium, the collection of 
those who hold the pastoral office approve of this man. That's one ingredient. That's the ordination. But the other ingredient that's necessary is the call. That's the recognition of the church, not the ministerium here, but the church, that this man is qualified and we will have him to be our pastor. So that's why we use the language of called and ordained. Called, approved by the church, ordained, approved by the ministerium. Make sense? So call as a called and ordained servant of the word. You remember that from the absolution? Okay, that's what's behind that language, and that's what's behind our theology. It comes right out of these scriptures, where in all the scriptures you see the ministerium approving of the man and the church approving of the man. If the ministerium were to approve but not the church, no dice. If the church really wants him but the ministerium says no, no dice. So call and ordination are really just two sides of the same coin. We get into a lot of warring over words, but it is that simple, and the warring over words isn't necessary. Sometimes when we talk about call being the approval of the church and ordination being the approval of the ministerium, we just subsume that distinction under the language of divine call. But again, we're not going to get into a war of words here. The concepts are clear and evident biblically and clear and evident to us as at least as Lutherans, and throughout the history of the church were clear and evident. Okay, so that, those are the two sort of prongs through which the immediate call is extended to the man. He has to be recognized by the ministerium. And that's really, okay, so what does that look like? That's, that's our whole, um, I mean, it's all the hoops you have to jump through to get into the seminary, but then the seminary faculty has to approve you and the district president then into, into whose district you're going to be called has to approve of you along with the other count, the presidents, the council of presidents. And then when you get placed into that local congregation, pastors from the district, usually the circuit in specific, but sometimes the wider district, they come and actually come to your ordination. Okay? And they lay hands upon you. That is them approving of you. So this is all what's behind this biblical doctrine of the ordination, the laying on of hands done by the ministerium. The other side of the coin is what the church does in recognizing that the man has fit those qualifications, that the ministerium has approved of him, and that we would have him be our pastor. And that's the call. Two sides of the same coin, the one reality. Make sense? Okay, sorry if I'm belaboring the point, but we just don't often have time to, or opportunity to talk about these things or think about these things. Okay, so again, as, uh, as Chemnitz is laying out for us on the basis of the scriptures, especially Acts 14.23 and 1 Timothy 4.14, um, immediate call is indeed based on the word of God. And you see the apostles appointing elders in every church by an election of the church. The ministry of the church entrusted to Timothy by the laying out of hands of the presbytery And then he continues, very last lines of page 31, but lest this call appear to rest on examples without divine command, Paul commands Timothy and Titus to appoint ministers in every city 
and at the same time prescribes a form for them how they should do that. And again, that's why these three epistles are called the pastoral epistles. All right. Question 19 then follows. Show with statements and examples of Scripture that they who are legitimately called through regular means are called and sent by God himself. Chemnitz continues, Timothy, bishop of the church at Ephesus, was not called immediately, but through Paul and the presbytery. And then you have some scriptural references here. And he had a mandate similarly also to appoint other ministers of the church. And yet Paul says to the elders of the church at Ephesus, again, this is the pastoral office when we see the language of presbytery or the language of elders. This is now quoting Acts 20.28, The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The language there is actually bishops. It's just not used in a technical sense at this time. The Holy Spirit has made you bishops to rule the church of God. And in the second epistle to the Corinthians, which Timothy also signed, I don't know how he knows that. <laughs> I looked into it a little bit, but I could not find a definitive answer. Which Timothy also signed. Paul says in his own name and that of Timothy, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation and has entrusted to us the word of reconciliation. We therefore function as ambassadors in the name of Christ, God exhorting through us. Paul likewise declares that God gives and places in the church not only apostles who are called immediately, but also teachers and pastors who are called mediately. Okay, so you can see then the biblical emphasis on the ministerium and those holding the office, appointing men who fit the qualifications, making the judgment on the basis of those qualifications, then appointing them to the church. What you just also see, and what is largely even kind of assumed, is that if the church isn't going to receive a man, they're not going to receive a man. So you have to have the church's election, if not just tacit approval, as they go along with um, who is being sent. So. I, this this model is um, maybe even more clear or clearly represented in the Roman Catholic practice of a bishop who, in again, in their way of thinking, is, well, let, let's put it in our way of thinking. A bishop who is one who holds the pastoral office but has been elevated by man, not by God, to a supervisory role over his fellow pastors... Okay, he says to this priest or that, you're going to go here, you're going to go here, you're going to go there. And then he says, you've served there long enough, I'm going to pick you up and move you over here. Okay, it still has to be met with the tacit approval of the local parishes or congregations into which that priest is being placed. If not, they're not going to show up. And then the bishop will be forced to appoint someone else. You see how that works. So um, you can see that operating in a different system. You can see how it operates in our system. And you can see how generally um, this has been held by the church of all times and all places in one way, shape, or form or another. Well, except for the fanatics, the radical reformers, 
and their spiritual grandchildren, which are largely American evangelicals. There the office has gotten real messy and real messed up. All right, we're out of time here uh, for today. So we'll pick back up next week at question 20 and continue our examination of uh, the office of the ministry. We're going to take our time going through this, and then as we hit page 39, part 2, the Word and the Sacraments, we'll do a little bit more reading ahead and a little bit more um, picking and choosing of what we discuss. The Lord be with you.